Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. You should celebrate yourself every day, but some days you should celebrate with jewelry. Whether you want to commemorate an unforgettable moment or just bring some added sparkle to your collection, Blue Nile can offer you expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com today and experience the ease and convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. This is episode 38 of The Milkman of St. Gaff's, an absurdist horror podcast. Today I'd like to thank some new patrons. We have Lavender Quartz, Fly Sprayer, Oni, Apprentice, and Valerie the Beautiful, Milkman White Badge. Thank you very much for your support. You can visit HowieMilkman.com to learn more about how to support the show. And this episode is called The Man from Elkhorn. It's time for The Milkman of St. Gaffs, starring Howie the Milkman. Howie, did anything unusual happen during your last experiment? No? Any idea why the whale bones have gone dark? No? These blasted whales continue to interfere with the order of things. And Stan was right. Shortly after we got out of the car, it started raining. And it didn't stop raining for a long, long time. We went into the church. Father, what's wrong? The bones. Stan nodded. Some villainy of nature. There were some candles burning in the church, but it was gloomy and dark without the gentle glow of the whale bones. You couldn't see the ceiling at all. St. Fleming looked like a ghoul now in every depiction. Can we still prepare for the trial? Yes, I've sent a boy to inquire if the bones have been extinguished everywhere or just here. But I understand that you are a busy man, Mr. Stan. This shouldn't take long. And so, under the morose glare of St. Fleming's now strangely menacing countenance, we plotted a course meant to rescue me from a fate I could very well have woven myself. 
Not that I ever admitted that to anybody. It was the dog, it just leaped at him. I tried to get it off, but I was just a boy back then. The next little while, things went on sort of as usual. I delivered the milk by myself. Sometimes, I thought I saw little Joey standing under an awning somewhere, but it was never him. Stormy and I were both happy that I was back on days. She got her manager to let her just work morning shifts, so we had the afternoons to ourselves. It wasn't really the honeymoon phase anymore. In the initial phase, from the time when we met until now, we were just a couple of love-struck lovebirds who couldn't get enough of each other. But now that we'd gotten into a routine, I began to appreciate her on a whole new level. We were growing together and figuring out what true love really meant. We would take long walks and slowly but surely, Stormy felt she could open up to me. Of course, we always had to bring our umbrellas with us, since it never stopped raining. She told me all about how much her dad meant to her and how hard it was that he'd gotten caught up in all that political intrigue. But now, we were more or less a normal couple, making our way and making plans for the future that we hardly even dared to speak about to each other. And there were a lot of earthquakes that damaged a lot of buildings, and rumors about weird creatures hoisting themselves up out of the holes. Thank goodness our house was fine. We fought off the gloom by holding hands and walking close to each other, and when we'd come home, we'd get into warm clothes and make warm tea, and sit on the couch and listen to the radio, which finally we'd gotten working. A few times, my mom would show up and throw rocks at the windows or hit the walls with a stick. It terrified Stormy, and I was perplexed, figuring she was losing her marbles and her senility. But I always chased her away, which Stormy really appreciated. She can't hurt you now, my love. It was around this time that we heard that a man from Elkhorn had shown up to investigate the strange goings-on, the constant rain, the monsters and I even saw him once coming out of the church when I was going in. Father Abraxas told me the man wanted to see for himself if the whale bones had really gone out. Sometimes I walked at night after Stormy fell asleep, and I looked for the annex. I tried to remember all the impossible turns Joseph made, but I could never find the place again. Stan decided that there was no point in continuing the experiments since obviously something quite serious had happened in the other place and he wanted to know what it was. The other reason he didn't think it was necessary for me to go on was, as I told you last time, Frank was coming back here to Mingsbite. Of course, Frank was from here and I thought he really liked the clean country living on St. Gaff's because there wasn't so much substance abuse or fighting there but I guess he really wanted to come back because he'd taken it into his head to find some phlogisterian on his own. I was actually tasked with going down to the docks and meeting his ferry. I have to tell you that I was pretty miffed when I saw that he didn't have just a milk bottle full of the stuff. He was pushing a dolly with a whole milk canister full. I was jealous as hell. Frank, how you doing, buddy? Great. You are missing the big city? Oh no, nothing like that. Just doing my duty as a milkman. 
Is that thing really full of phlogisterian? For sure. Hey, you didn't think you were the only seeker milkman, did you? And he winked at me. But where did you get it? You got it from a Felena? Hey, Howie, you and I are buds, for sure. But really, this is kind of a matter of professional advancement, so I kind of got to keep it to myself. You understand, right? Oh, of course. In another time and place, I would have sicked a dog right at his annoying throat, but I grinned and bared it as usual, always trying to be the people-pleaser. I went with him all the way to the Department of Lactic Affairs Experimental Labs, and I showed Frank the ladder and climbed up behind him. Frank, you really are our savior, a small, still voice in the midst of a sea of incompetence. I see that victory is now within our grasp. I couldn't help but take that personally. Howie, show Frank the crepusculator at once. But I didn't, because, as fate would have it, right at that moment, a junior priest ran in. Howie Coxwell, your trial begins tonight. And that set off a whole flurry of activity. We took a procession of riverboats up the River Kirsten at sundown. It was slow going, and there were a lot of us. They were all in robes, maybe to keep the rain off, or maybe because the trial was a religious thing. I didn't know who all the people were because they were covered up by the robes, everyone but me. I was in my uniform, which was not very thick, and it was getting pretty wet already. I shivered in the cold. Maybe I was just cold, but maybe I was afraid. I was on trial for my life. And to be totally honest, I didn't feel like I knew Father Abraxas or Stan well enough to really depend on them. I wished I had Mr. Corwin or someone there with me. I tried hard to think back about what happened that night so long ago that I was on trial for now, but all I could think about was how Stormy would be on her own tonight and how much she would have enjoyed the evening boat ride. We pulled the boats up and some old guy tied them to the dock. We lit torches and were led up a path to a place called Panix Hill. While we were walking, someone jabbed me in the back with something. I turned around. Just a bunch of faceless people in robes. No one said a thing. Who could it have been? We kept going up the hill. On top, it was drizzling, and the hill was high and exposed to the wind. There was a big circular area covered in stone. The hill was sort of barren with a few really old ash trees here and there. You could see the lights of Mingsbite down below. The legal clerks arranged us, and someone poked me again from behind. Hey, who was that? Silence, a clerk whispered. You can't imagine how mad I was. Wasn't it enough that I was on trial for murder, but someone had to poke me like that and I wasn't even allowed to say anything about it? After that, I kept looking over my shoulder. I felt very exposed and I wished I had a heavy robe like everyone else. Anyways, we were all in a circle around the judge. The judge was a stone god, a statue from ancient times, a four-sided gray pillar with a bulbous head on top, small frowning eyes and a frowning mouth. 
intertwined hands were carved onto the front. He was weathered and wise-looking, and he spoke through an interpreter who put her ear to his mouth to hear what he had to say. The clerks set up torches all around. Someone, somewhere, rang a bell. And I guess the trial started. A man in crimson robes, Wilson, the head of the Tertullians, pulled his hood back so we could see his face. He walked into the middle of the circle, bowed to the judge, and began his prosecution speech. The circumstantial evidence in this case is incontrovertible. How his father picked him up from jail and brought him home. His mother, as she will testify, helped his father pack a bag for the young man, as they both felt it was time for him to move on to other opportunities. And then, while his mother was baking Howie one last goodbye apple pie, she heard a kerfuffle outside, and when she went to look, Howie was gone, and her loving husband was dead, torn to pieces. The key question here, if Howie wasn't the perpetrator, who was it? Who else could have committed such a heinous deed? The only possible answer is that it was the ungrateful, and as we shall see, heretical, Howie Coxwell, a boy too bizarre for this world or the next. Your Holiness, the punishment should fit the crime. Howie Coxwell does not deserve to walk among us any longer. He kept on going for a while, talking about all the ways I wasn't a good follower of the Great Whaler, and about how me thinking I was a seeker meant I was really a total apostate, and that the Church Fathers had declared seekerism a heresy long ago. I was actually starting to drift off despite being cold and wet when, yet again, I felt a firm, determined finger in the back of my ribs. I tried to elbow whoever it was behind me, but there wasn't anyone there. I just felt totally helpless about the whole thing. But then my defender, Father Abraxas, pulled his hood back and went into the middle of the circle to give his apology. Howie Coxwell is a milkman. A milkman. A man who has sworn an oath to uphold the health and cleanliness of our populace. He walks in the steps of countless milkmen before him. A lineage we can trace back all the way to our glorious savior. Howie Coxwell is also human. He has his faults. He's made mistakes, just as you and others have. But I have met with Howie low these many days, preparing for this trial, and I say to you, without blushing, Howie's heart is as pure as any glass of milk you've ever tasted. The glass may be mottled and speckled over with the detritus of a difficult upbringing, but the interior, deep down inside, remains unblemished. He had no wish to harm either of his parents. He has striven in his way to be a dutiful son. We will show over the course of the next two evenings that Howie is simply not capable of the actions he is accused of here today. After that, there were a bunch of what Abraxas called personality witnesses. It was sort of nice because I got to see a lot of my old friends from St. Gas, even though I didn't get to talk to them. I guess they'd all come over secretly on the ferry. 
And so, Dr. Barrett, as a doctor, what is your opinion of Howie's mental defect? The parts of his brain have become dissociated. The pendula is no longer attached to the lavidum. Even large doses of podexium can't bring the parts back together again. Professor Lammy, in your professional opinion, how was Howie's relationship with his father? Howie thought that he and his mother and father were all in this together, that things were tough, but that they'd pull through together. When he began to see that his parents, that his father, didn't see it that way, it's like the ground beneath his feet gave way somehow. He began to live in a very different world than you or I. Could you be more specific? Mm, Howie told me about a model ship he'd gotten from his father for his 12th birthday. He told me that he always regretted not being able to put it together with him. He didn't know if he was too old to build it, or if perhaps his father didn't really want to build it with him. Father Whelan, wouldn't you say that Howie demonstrates a total lack of cinderesis in his actions? Oh, I don't know. He brought my lunch on time. He seemed like a good boy. Come now, Father, you must admit that he exhibits the direst symptoms of heresy. Well, who among us isn't a little heretical sometimes? Hmm. The interpreter said the judge wanted to hear more from Father Whelan about his opinions about heresy and his lunches. I could tell the judge was giving me nasty looks. What was that, Mr. Granard? I heard what the doctor and everyone said, but is none of it true? Howie's just an awful person. It was quite a night, and I did a lot of introspection on myself. Who knew that my old buddy Granard thought I was an awful person? That hurt. But this was just the preliminary part of the trial. Tomorrow, it was going to be all about my mother, and Stan was going to testify on my behalf. We all filed back down the hill in the rain. The horizon was glowing through the rainy gloom. The moons and the green stars were nowhere to be seen. The boat ride back was nice, poking the river bottom with sticks to propel us along. I nearly fell asleep except for another jab in the back. I was looking forward to collapsing into bed when I got home, but of course, Dwyer had put me back on days even though we'd worked hard for a night trial. So off I went on my rounds, and when I came back nearly delirious with exhaustion to the station, Dwyer, with his revolting fat lips, told me I had to get to the experimental labs right away. Nah, they'll get you to your trial on time, but you need to get over there now. So off I went, no dinner with Stormy, no way to even tell her where I was. I was nodding off every which way when I got to the lab. They told me to get to the crepusculator, which is where I went. And then I perked right up at the sight of Frank pouring all sorts of phlogisterian into the machine and smiling at me. No, really, Frank, where did you get it? Pretty amazing, right? But the crepusculator still wasn't working properly. Perhaps out of jealousy, or perhaps out of a genuine desire to help, I went over to the machine. This thing can go a lot faster. Here, I'll show you. And I pushed a few important-looking buttons, but it didn't help. In fact, it almost seemed like the machine was working worse. 
It made a frightening noise and I stepped back, accidentally knocking over the milk container full of phlogiscurion. Frank freaked out and tried to save it by getting on his knees and trying to push the liquid around, but there was a hole in the floor and all the stuff just flowed uselessly down there. Frank stood up and, like me, watched, dumbfounded. I thought he was going to flip his lid and attack me, but he didn't. He took a deep, responsible breath and said, Well, that's a pain, but there's a lot more where that came from. I can get more, no problem. How? Hey, professional secret, bud, but I'll do you a favor. Just then, Stan stormed in. He was shorter than Frank, who was taller than me, but still, scary. I heard the machine. What's wrong with it? Where is the phlogisterian? Frank gave me a magnanimous look and turned to the boss. It wasn't Howie, sir. I knocked over the bucket and screwed up the machine. But don't worry, there's lots... But Stan had transformed into some horrible beast that I had only seen in my dreams. And he was feasting on my old friend Frank. I can't begin to tell you how awful this was. I thought back about the drive up to the radio station, his joking around when we took care of Floorsham. He'd always been there for me. And now, partly because of me, this was happening to a fellow milkman. Ever since that moment, I didn't fully trust Stan. But just after that, we were summoned. The boats were ready. I don't know what you think you saw, Howie, but you clearly haven't slept for a long time. Sometimes the mind can play tricks on the vulnerable. Oh, for sure, sir. And as luck would have it, up on the windy, raining hill, they wanted me to testify again, my own self. There are questions about the activities of the milkmen. The milkmen worship Satan, don't they? I looked at Stan. He was frowning. No way, I said. I looked back at Stan and it was clear that I'd won some points. Then Abraxas questioned Stan. Howie is a competent milkman. You don't think he'd hurt anyone, do you? I don't think so, no. Then they brought my mother out, and she pointed at me with her hateful finger. You know what you did, she hissed. Wilson took up the questioning, and my mother got all weepy when she talked about making one last pie for her little boy who was going out into the world to find his own way. Mrs. Coxwell, I think we'd all agree that it's every child's duty to make their parents happy. Would you say that Howie has made you happy? No, and he didn't even attend his own father's funeral. And she broke down into sobs. Now it was the turn of Father Abraxas to take over. He offered my mother a tissue, but it was all wet because of the rain, so she didn't even take it. Would you agree, Mrs. Coxwell, that Howie has done quite well for himself since he left home? He's gotten a highly respectable job, and I understand that he'll be getting a red badge any day now. No, he has not done well, and he is not a good milkman. I'm on his route, and he hasn't delivered the milk to me even once. I stood up. That's a damned lie! You're not on my route! But the clerks held me back, and the interpreter shouted that we had to be quiet. I saw the devilish smile on my mother's thin, smoky lips. Father Abraxas was flummoxed. No further questions. And then I was back on the stand. 
Howie, did you really want to make that model with your father? Remember, the judge is watching. I figured there was no point in lying. No, I thought I was too old to build it with him. Would you have made it with him if you'd been younger? I would have, but he never wanted to when I was younger. Howie, did you want your father dead? No. The interpreter looked at me. His honor wishes to search your heart himself. Kneel before him. There was a storm gathering above us. It was getting darker as I looked at the piece of stone. I knelt down and I swear I could hear him humming, ruminating. The interpreter leaned in to hear what the judge said. Then we all held our breaths as she read out the verdict. Later, on the way down the hill, I felt like the littlest piece of dirt, but also like I could reach out and destroy the whole city beneath me. I don't know if it was me or the sky, but the ground was vibrating. The air got dense and thick, and just like that, a bolt of lightning exploded one of the crooked ancient trees. It caught fire. All of us ended up losing our way. We were disoriented from the flash. I felt like it was my fire. I watched as the flames leapt from one tree to another, even though it was raining more and more. No one knew where they were going, drifting all around me. Except two law clerks. I think they thought I was trying to escape. The two hooded figures ran at me. Between the flames and the hoods, I could only run up the hill. Others were wandering aimlessly around us, but I went straight to the middle of the court circle. I came face to face with the miserable god. Lit up in the fire, I could see every sad pockmark the years had given him, and his head exploded. The pillar cracked as the lightning smashed into his ugly old face. An overawing gasp came up out of the earth. I thought I'd won, but bits of debris flew at me, and one hit me in the head, knocking me backwards into the dirt under the hill, crawling with bugs and ant tunnels and the bones of every poor bastard that got executed on this hill because they couldn't make the lightning come. I was pushing my way through, looking for the way out. If I could gloat over the broken god just one time, my evening would be complete. I writhed as it happened again, that finger, but it wasn't a finger. It was a stick poking me in the back, like my old neighbor's stick. But it wasn't my neighbor's stick. It was my mother's finger pushing me out the door that time. Had it always been her poking me? The hoods picked me up, telling me a stone hit me and knocked me out. They dragged me down to the ferries where everyone from the trial was waiting. We punted back down the river. I even got to use a stick myself and we watched the hill as it burned with its dead god on top. The interpreter was with us, wailing like a ranch of banshees.